Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me, I'm delighted to say, is Eleanor Burke Nicholson. Welcome to the show, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. For our listeners, Eleanor is a Catholic author and scholar. She is the Victorian literature instructor at Homeschool Connections. And she has worked as the editor on several of the Ignatius Press critical editions of the classic novels. And she has written for numerous Catholic websites and has recently written two Gothic novels, the first of which was A Bloody Habit, uh, which was published in 2018 and which we've spoken here about on the show. And her newest title, Brother Wolf, was published, was I believe in August of this year or was it September? September 1st of this year. Wonderful. Essentially, it's pretty new. Um, I was very lucky to get a chance to read it before this episode, and I very much enjoyed it. So I'm really thrilled to have a Catholic author on the show, and also one who is as obsessed with Gothic stuff as I am. (laughs) Well, it's a rich topic, as you know, um, and one that is just, I think, underappreciated in Catholic circles. So sharing the love of the Gothic is sort of evangelization both ways, you know? Um, when, yeah. I, when my first book came out, I felt like I was b- between a rock and a hard place. All of the non-Catholics were saying, um, Catholic? And all of the Catholics were saying, um, Gothic? So um, <laughs> I, I'm an intermediary. I'm an intermediary uh, trying to evangelize both in both directions. I think that's wonderful. And I think that would be great to maybe get a little bit of your background and how you got into writing and and writing fiction. We're going to go on and talk about gothic fiction and then later the sensationalist novel, The Woman in White. But just to begin with, like, I think it's really interesting for our listeners to hear, like, what what inspired you to start writing fiction and what is your kind of background? Well, I always uh, felt inclined towards writing fiction as soon as I could read. I was thinking in terms of stories I was writing them down. Uh, Thankfully, most of them are lost. I am not Jane Austen, so my juvenilia should not be treasured. And I hope no one ever finds an old computer and finds the manuscripts, because I'm pretty sure they were wretched. But so I was always writing stories. Love the Victorian period. That's what I uh, studied and specialized in for undergraduate and graduate. But it was really through my mother. My mother was always reading always introducing us to the classics. That's where I experienced Dickens, Tolkien, Shakespeare, Austen, Wilkie Collins, although I, we experienced it simultaneously. She had not read Collins. I found Collins and forced her to read it with me. The Gothic formally I came to in my late teens. This is largely because I am extremely easy to scare. I know we will probably discuss Robert Louis Stevenson and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde scared the life out of me. Uh, When I first read Dracula, I was laughing so hard, but then I couldn't sleep. Frankenstein as well. I'm just very easy to to scare in the uh, Sherlock Holmes mystery. um, Oh, I'm sorry. I should apologize. As Rachel knows, I'm holding a baby who may wake up at any moment. The Speckled Band. I still am not over the speckle band. Uh, I will not sleep in a room where there is a grate over my bed. I won't do it. Um, So I'm very easy to scare, but I became fascinated with the literary Gothic and the unintentional hilarity of the genre, but also the richness of it. And then was working on Dracula, came to write 
uh, A Bloody Habit, thoroughly enjoyed writing A Bloody Habit and then sort of continued to write and found my way into Brother Wolf. But I have been playing around with the Gothic for 20 years, uh, and which totally ages me. But um, it's been a phenomenal 20 years. I do know my limitations, though. Straight contemporary horror, I can't stomach. I have to be able to sleep, you know, when the children let me. Yeah, I definitely, I don't really go in for modern horror, especially horror films. Give me gothic films all day long, but uh, (laughs) I don't tend to seek out horror. And then maybe could you tell us like a little bit about A Bloody Habit? I know I said we we talked about it, it's I think almost exactly a year ago since our Dracula episode. and, And that's actually how the two of us first got in touch. I will say a little bit of Risky Enchantment trivia. I think I first mentioned you on the third ever episode of Risky Enchantment. So 50 episodes later, here you are. I think that one's called Monsters and Romanticism. I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to it, except for the fact that both me and my friend Chloe, who recorded it, have terrible colds. <laughs> and so you, uh, every time I like listen to any part of that episode, I'm like, you can really hear that we have just like shocking colds. <laughs> I think I remember editing out as many of the sniffles as I could, but it, it wasn't possible. But doesn't it feel a little bit appropriate in the gothic and the sensation? It makes sense that the narrator would have some sort of Uh, sickness or debilitating condition that is mitigating against telling the story. So I I think that's actually, it was either that or you had to be descending into madness, you know, if you're going to be telling the story. So I think descending into madness would make for a more confusing episode. (laughs) Slightly more. Well, Bloody Habit, uh, as you noted, was my first Gothic novel. um, And it was inspired by Dracula. It is a telling of a Dracula-esque story from a different vantage point. So you have a, my protagonist is a very forthright, downright, clear-thinking, post-enlightenment Englishman, vaguely agnostic, and he encounters the threat of vampires. At the same time that he's reading Bram Stoker's Dracula and dismissing it as rubbish, he starts being worried by the presence of some sort of vampiric force um, and wondering if he's going mad. But at the same time, he's also encountering Dominican friars who are exorcists and purported vampire slayers. And the, as a good Englishman uh, and staunchly anti-Catholic, he's perhaps more terrified by the Dominicans than he is by the vampires. So uh, in the unfolding of the plot, I was able to inflict all sorts of horrifying situations on this narrator, which I found very, very amusing. I'm I'm not a malicious person in real life, but in fiction, I enjoy tormenting my characters, especially John Kemp. And um, it was partly from a theory I had that if you had vampires, the ones who would be best versed to deal with those vampires would be someone like a priest, a Dominican friar. I have a long association with the Dominicans, a Dominican friar who confects the Eucharist every day. Dealing with the sacramental, dealing with the supernatural, the preternatural just isn't a big deal. So he would be sort of systematic and clinical and not so worried. At the same time, that would be a terrible narrator. So you needed to play on the uh, history of uh, anti-Catholic anxiety and Catholic appropriation in the Gothic. So throwing all of that together, um, I think, made for a very fun book. As I said, I enjoyed writing it. I think that's wonderful. I I very much enjoyed reading it. And I think you're so right about the narrator, because also, as we'll 
probably mention a little later on, the sense of mystery being so important to the Gothic and the sort of atmosphere of Gothic. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the different differences between that and, say, detective fiction, but all of these genres have a kind of core thing, which is a mystery that needs to be, you know, understood or revealed. And so it's just that in in, in Gothic literature, that's more usually a preternatural or phantasmagorical solution. So if you have someone who knows it all and understands it all, and I think as you pointed out before, also knows that Christ has the ultimate victory and that there is no no real defeat that can be possible, that totally spoils the sense of mystery about the novel. Like it just doesn't work. You don't have a sense of foreboding, which is so important to reading Gothic literature. Well, and something that I know we're going to be talking about with uh, the use of doubling as a trope, all of the mechanisms of the Gothic and the weird otherness of the Gothic, which in the anti-Catholic tradition is conveyed by having, you know, a Catholic character. Uh, you, you want to show something that's um, otherworldly, a little bit threatening. If you're in an English novel, you have a Jesuit walkthrough. You know, so you're capturing something, but it's specifically meant to be there to provoke you into looking outwardly at a mystery, but a mystery that then stops and makes you look at the mystery within yourself and say, Mm -hmm. if I see disease and disorder or terror out here, what is actually within? And that's the exciting and challenging moment, I think, in Gothic fiction and sensation fiction. All the atmospherics, they're not just there for fun, although they are tremendous fun, but there has to be that reflexive act by the protagonist to see where he or she fits into that weird, uncanny world that is being introduced by the novelist. Absolutely. And I suppose then that brings us to to Brother Wolf and we have yet another unsuspecting narrator. (laughs) Yes, a very different narrator, of course, because Athena Howard is, she's grown up in a world that's devoid of enchantment. So for her, encountering something that represents re-enchantment, this is why I was so excited to send it to you uh, as a manuscript, when she sees something that represents re-enchantment, which for her is Catholicism, mystery, the preternatural, the werewolves, everything that's going on, she's fascinated and drawn to it and desirous to immerse herself into it. Well, it's extremely dangerous, and it also has to be approached in a way that requires her to look more closely at herself. I think it's more, it's very, I hope, very subtle in Brother Wolf, but the degree to which she has to see how far her own abilities take her. She's an extremely knowledgeable person and has been raised to value her knowledge. When is it healthy for her not to have knowledge and to hand over the reins to those who are qualified to handle the preternatural. So I think she has to encounter that uncanny, that weirdness that she desires so much and stop and grow as a protagonist. Wonderful. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it as well. There's so much to explore. And I think you really, um, I'm going to say indulged in lots of excellent scene setting. There's It travels across Europe in the, at the kind of turn of the century. And I love all of that kind of backdrop to it. <laughs> which was so much fun. Uh, Also a consequence of the process of writing. I had my characters reached a certain place and then I realized that historically my Dominican friars would not have been there and I had to figure out what to do. So it took me a little while. Um, And then when I realized where they needed to go, it made perfect sense. 
but I was partly guided by my my initial mistaken direction of the entire crew to Paris, and they they wouldn't have been. So I had to. That was. I stalled out for about six months until I did enough research to figure out what must have happened. I love that. And I've listened to you on um, the Fountains of Carrots podcast before. And I think you speak so wonderfully about writing in that sense of letting the characters kind of tell you the story. And I think it's really exciting and inspiring for people to, to listen to in terms of I think that's what's kind of appealing about these gothic stories, even for modern writers, is that I think it takes a step back from the sort of tortured introspection of some aspects of modern literature or modernist thinking that like actually allows these problems of the soul and and these battles for the soul to take place externally in a way that's sort of fun and compelling and interesting and intriguing and scary and not just have it happen on an interior basis. Absolutely. And it's at the same time, I think, so richly relevatory of the inner life. But you can, as you said, you can talk about life and death, salvation and damnation. If you do that in a modern contemporary novel, and I really struggle with the division between from genre fiction and literary fiction, I think it's a false. I understand why you would separate them that way to organize bookstores, but I think it's false. Mm -hmm. But the so-called literary fiction of today it can be just so mind-numbing. It can so easily descend into navel-gazing. I, well, I'm a Dickens lover, so I want the spectacle. I want to see as many different characters as I can, different from myself, and then I will be able to reflect upon myself as needed. But I don't know. A Victorian novel, if an 800-page novel were all about someone's interiority, I'd go crazy before page 700, and I have a pretty high stamina for long books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I agree, having worked in some areas of publishing and, and the, the book world, as it were, these these genre distinctions are becoming less and less meaningful or relevant. And yeah, I think there's now, there was the category of young adult for a very long time. And now that those people who read young adult are now no longer sort of young adults. They're they're now sort of creating, I guess, another c category that they're calling, I think, new adult or something like that, which I think to me just sort of speaks to a, a kind of sense of guilt about still reading young adult fiction when you're 35 or whatever. Yeah, uh, possibly, possibly. Well, even with Brother Wolf, when I saw it categorized on various websites where it was for sale, I think, well, no, can't we just call it gothic fiction? But it was called speculative fiction or it was called werewolf fiction. And if you look at the werewolf fiction offerings, I my book looks very strange uh, because it's, you know, not a bodice ripper cover with... <laughs> just half transformed um, werewolf figure who somehow um, the last thing to transform is his chest. So we have to look at it. It's just very distasteful. The sort of book you, I, it, it looks very strange next to my cover. Let's just say that. Um, and as you said, less helpful divisions and divisions and divisions of the genre, which is something I know we can discuss here too. Because even the gothic genre broke down into mm. several different genres that then all sort of interact in really interesting ways. And even gothic in some ways sits under romance, which, you know, Ooh. is such a, a broad term for such a wide variety of the, the, the way that like, you know, the Dracula and the Hobbit are technically within the same um, sort of genre specifications. So I, yeah, I guess maybe we can talk a little bit more about the Gothic as a genre. And I think we've touched on 
why it's so interesting, but maybe go into a little bit more detail just in terms of we have, I, I know we have discussed what Gothic is previously on the podcast, but maybe just like a, a catch up for, for anyone who's who's new. Who doesn't have the time to pause quite yet. And again, do go back and listen to that early podcast. That's what introduced me to your podcast. Um, I stumbled upon myself in uh, podcast notes and went, wait, I'm here? Um, And then listened to it and was so delighted by your very skillful uh, description of the genre and its emergence and the influence of romanticism. So if you think of the Gothic arising at the end of the 1700s, specifically as a reaction to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment says everything is rational, everything is clear, everything is um, can be perceived by human reason and empirical science. And then you have this reaction among the romantics, but they say, no, there's hidden weirdness, hidden torment, and we want to access it. There's that line in William Blake's fabulous short work, uh, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, where he describes a demon. Um, The demon writes, how do you know, I'm going to paraphrase, how do you know, but every bird that cuts the airy way is a world of sensation closed to your, or a world of experience, I'm sorry close to your senses five. So the idea, even though he's still talking in terms of the senses and of experience, he's saying there, there are hidden marvels. There are hidden marvels and hidden terrors that are part of the metaphysical framework of the world, which has been largely dismissed via Protestantism and the Enlightenment, but it's also deep within man himself. There's also a painting by Goya, or a sketch, I'm sorry, a woodcut perhaps, where it's the sleep of reason produces nightmares. So there was a desire to tap into the lack of reason. Um, And this comes out all across the Romantics and leads to the establishment of the Gothic, which the first Gothic novel is technically The Castle of Otranto, which is, I think, 1790. Super weird book. Super weird book. Um, Fabulously weird book. Um, But then you have the emergence of these gothic tales, which are sort of elevated when the romantics start playing around with it. And of course, I'm referring to Mary Shelley's writing of Frankenstein Mm. and the simultaneous production at the same time by John Polidori, Byron's private physician of the short story, The Vampire. So they're dealing with these deep romantic themes, but they're also starting to produce and engage in this gothic landscape. And it just explodes across the Victorian period. You have a range of high quality gothic and lousy gothic and um, all of it delightful. But even major writers, (laughs) Charlotte Bronte starts playing around with the gothic and trying to make it balance with her rationalist desires. Dickens plays in the gothic, steals all the atmospherics. And then you lead to, as you and I have discussed elsewhere, the emergence of detective fiction, of the sensation novel, which inhabit many of the same areas, just with different results than the gothic novel. That's wonderful. I love it. And I love it, that sense of it tapping into the unknown and the numinous and that feeling like there's something more, that that sensation of awe that's that you encounter outside of yourself but then with due reflection inside of yourself and awe and terror going together and and that sense of like the numinous being like just a shade away from the uncanny that like um that the numinous can be sublime but the uncanny is the the thing that keeps you awake at night (laughs) and and uh the result is so you'll have the realm of mystery what is your answer going to be what is your solution going to be i was thinking last night about james hogg's confessions of a justified sinner that is one of the weirdest gothic novels 
And at the end, you're left with the question, is the solution psychological instability? Is there's this doppelganger? Is the doppelganger a division of the self or is the doppelganger demonic? And there's no answer. There's no answer. James Hogg does not give an answer. He just puts all these narrative degrees to back himself away from the weirdness saying, well, this is a manuscript by a person. And then it's discovered in this way, um, which is one of those great Gothic tropes, explain the manuscript. But if you go into some of the other genres, as with Woman in White, with sensation fiction, the answer can't be the preternatural. It has to be psychological. It has to be social. We're all for the fracturing of the self, but the Gothic in the end has to be reduced to atmospherics. Yeah. And that's, and that's the key difference. I think you laid out for me in one of your emails when we were talking about this. So we have the Gothic and the, for the Gothic to work, the, the answer to the mystery has to be something preternatural or phantasmagorical or kind of outside of reason and rationality. And then we move into slightly later in the era, the sensation novel, which is like you were saying, a lot of the sort of dressing of the Gothic, but taking away that preternatural intervention that it does actually have a a rational explanation. And then going a step further, again, you get the detective novel, which is more about about the rationality of, of the clues and finding it the whole way along. And you're usually a little bit, another step removed from those kind of gothic dressings. I wrote an article for Levin magazine recently, which is a magazine we're producing in Ireland for Catholic writers. And it's wonderful. We finally got it in print. It's not just online. So <laughs> we're really excited. But I was talking about the supernatural in detective fiction and how that threatens to disrupt how detective fiction works. Because if the answer is not a rational answer if it is a supernatural answer it totally undermines the whole genre that you can't actually if you can't guess what it would happen at the end or if it doesn't actually follow as a train of logic then you you feel cheated as a reader precisely precisely and this is something that uh, makes it interesting that wilkie collins is playing in both worlds i mean uh, woman in white operates as a stream of evidence and collecting evidence even the narrative itself is a collection of evidence But you get this idea, there's a lot of discussion of the law as well. And Collins, in writing Woman in White, and then again in Moonstone, he derived the structure from his experience of a court case. And he said, hearing the evidence, why wouldn't this be the way that you would tell a story? That you can only tell the things that are of your experience, that you can relate them. And in the end, it elevates the reader not the level of the detective, but say the de- level of the judge, judging all this evidence, which at the end of Woman in White, there are a couple of spots where Walter Hartwright says the law would not be able to prosecute this or their discoveries they make. One of the most critical discoveries of the novel that makes sense of the weird doppelganger, um, he says, this, this, is not, this is not evidence that would do anything in a court of law. This is just my interpretation of circumstantial evidence. And it's just, it's not sufficient for a detective novel, even though I'm operating like a detective novel, even my solution, which is social in its uh, foundation, it has to operate in a social way or a psychological way. So even his forcing the primary villain into a confession of everything that has gone on, it's this psychological game. It's cat and mouse. It's not, here is the clear evidence and I am going to prove it and then you will hang for it. No, it's, mm. it's, uh, it's a psychological game that the amateur detective can negotiate because he doesn't have the responsibilities or the authority of an actual detective. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is that sense of there, it being less about following any train of clues and more about following the personalities, like in that each section is written from a character within the story. And so they're just presenting their thoughts, their emotions, their feelings, their experiences, rather than saying, oh, and then we found this this scrap of of a cloak or this, you know, or there was dust on someone's hat. Like it is about getting people to not so much confess, but just transmit and record their experience of a particular situation. And from there to come to the conclusion of what was actually going on. Well, this actually brings us back to the topic that I know is very central uh, in both our interests, which is the use of the double in Woman in White because look at the critical doubling in the book. There are, there are doubles all over the place, even doubles in the way that he frames certain narratives or there are certain scenes where if you stop, you say, wait a second, I've seen this before. Um, the most famous is the introduction of Anne Catherick where she comes out of the mist and touches Walter Hartwright's arm and he doesn't scream, I, which I, is unnatural. Why does he not scream you know, for help? But there's a moment later on where Count Fosco does the same thing to Marianne Halcombe exact same scene. Um, mm-hmm. And she too represses a screen. Um, in any case, the two, the critical doubling, the most important doubling, which is Laura Fairley and her doppelganger, the uh, mentally unstable Anne Catherick, neither of them has a narrative. Neither of them has a narrative in this book. We only mm-hmm. hear from them via different narrators. So, uh, and they're the ones who I think that the doubling they're, they're the greatest victims in the novel. How does that play mm-hmm. out? Why do we never get to hear them directly? from? Themselves? You even hear Mr. Frederick Fairley. My students, when I taught Woman in White, they wanted to hear Mr. Fairley's uh, servant, Louis, and they wanted a follow-on novel where Louis kills Mr. Fairley. But that's, that's by the way. It's less important <laughs> than the lack of Laura Fairley, Lady Glyde, and Anne Catherick. They don't get to tell their story except through other people. That's so true. And I think that that kind of leads us on perfectly because I think we're going to talk a little bit about what the double does in Gothic fiction generally and then look at it and how it works within specifically within The Woman in White as a obviously Gothic double appearing in a in a sensation novel. But yeah, so just to, I think again it's one of those topics that's so central to the Gothic novel that I, I believe we have touched on it a little bit before. But just to to kind of dive into it again and, and look at how like this idea of doubling within Gothic stories is so important. I think probably because they deal with the monstrous and how it's always a question of you're comparing yourself to whatever monster you're fighting. And it's most interesting when you begin to see yourself in that monster in various ways. And so, and also just that sense, like we were saying of the uncanny, like, is there anything more uncanny than sort of catching yourself in a mirror when you didn't expect to see yourself and you don't recognize yourself for a second? Or I remember I once walked into the kitchen and my mom was playing my podcast and it honestly took me about 10, 15 seconds to be like, oh, that's me. (laughs) And so the word the uncanny, I think, is most used these days in reference to the phrase the uncanny valley, which is where we're talking about animation and even robots that are more and more lifelike or more and more true to our usual vision of the world that but not actually crossing the boundary into being actually able to 
be indistinguishable. And so you reach this point where it's like, I know this is supposed to look like a human, but it looks weirdly so much less like a human because it's almost a human. And that I know like companies like Pixar ended up making their, their human animations more cartoonish because people were more able to connect with them because weirdly I think it's like the Polar Express or those kind of films where they look so much like humans that you just find yourself a bit repulsed by them yes yeah it's the it's the taking of something recognizable and you've brought back a memory of something that was non-literary in origin where one evening my youngest brother came down our staircase in the dark he was wearing all black and he had convinced himself that he was brave enough to walk down the front staircase by himself. I happened to be coming around the corner and when he reached the bottom of the staircase, the moonlight reflected on the lake outside my parents' house and bounced off his face. So I saw the disembodied, floating, glowing white face of a child. And if you've read Victorian fiction, an angelic looking child is one of the most terrifying uh, ghostly things that can be introduced. And it looks like my brother, but wasn't my brother. And I, of course, recognized him, but it was a split second too late. So I screamed, which having him turn the corner and have me screaming in his face made him scream. So my mother came in and found us both on the floor, you know, shaking with terror and hilarity. Um, But it's, it's that something that's uncanny, something that's recognizable, but is not what you know. Um, and this, I know you have a great quote that you want to bring in Chesterton on Stevenson. This is the reason my eldest daughter confessed to me that she does not like the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because it's something that appears normal and held a person who should be good and then can become dangerous and be destroyed in that, you know, in that embrace of evil and that terrifies her, the idea of something that appears and should be good and virtuous and strong and insp- and a, a hero who becomes corrupted, uh, descends into something else. That's, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. It is. Yeah, I think that is exactly the point. And I, I'll just come to that quote now. And, and But I was going to say that, like, I think in some ways you can really hone in on, on the different levels of doubles within Gothic novels. Like you can have doubles that are sort of apparitions that just are take the appearance of other people or you can have like we have in in the woman in white which is just a somewhat more normal experience i guess which is like an uncanny resemblance it's just someone who happens to look very like this other person or uh, you can have a sort of creation doubling i guess it's like a you have two characters that are either very disparate or very connected and whether they sort of complement each other or whether they actually sort of are divided from each other in unusual ways you're kind of struck by that and that's kind of what you get in Frankenstein which is you have this creature and its creator and they're kind of wrestling with how they are alike each other and how they are not alike each other but like you said when you get to something like Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde it is about literally two characters that are operating in the same body. And so you have this really close doubling that's like, I think in some ways, the distillation of all, all of the, the doubling motifs in literature. So uh, yeah, I have this quote. And Chesterton was an incredible advocate for Stevenson. I was reading some of his quotes from his like defense of Stevenson, and they're just wonderful. I'd really recommend them. He has one which opens with, it turns out that Stevenson was a great man. We already had a hint of it because he was misunderstood by his enemies. But now with this new publication 
of this this book, we have found that he has the other characteristic necessary of great men, and that is to be misunderstood by their admirers, which might be the single most cutting review comment I have ever heard of anything. Chesterton is on another level with that. But he, yeah, he's making fun of how people misunderstand Robert Louis Stevenson and the, the book as a whole. He says, alas, it is equally characteristic of the Victorian time that while nearly every Englishman has enjoyed the anecdote, hardly one Englishman has seen the joke. I mean, the point. You will find 20 allusions to Jekyll and Hyde in a day's newspaper reading. You will also find that all such allusions suppose the two personalities to be equal, neither caring for the other, or more roughly, that the book means that a man can be cloven into two creatures, good and evil. The whole stab of the story is that a man can't, because while evil does not care for good, good must care for evil. Or, in other words, man cannot escape from God, because good is the God in man and insists on omniscience. This point, which is good psychology and also good theology and also good art, has missed its main intention merely because it was also good storytelling. <laughs> yes, Chesterton is uh, Chesterton on literature is just incomparable. Even when I disagree with him, which I do about some of his characterizations of specific Dickens novels, he's just masterful. The Brontes, Austin, he captures them. Detective fiction, he just does an incredible job. And I think in that particular quote, which I love, he's striking at, or could be striking at, one of the weak points in Dracula, which is a fabulous novel. It's a train wreck of a novel. It's a masterpiece and a mess. Is that in his exuberance, Bram Stoker strays into Manichaeism. So good and evil are not equal. They are not equal. As he says here with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the good, the God and man, we can't escape from the good and they can't be together in the same person. You can't have them equally duking it out. It's also, I'll follow with another Chesterton quote for you, and this is about Wilkie Collins, where he talks about the two elements in Collins, the mechanical and the mystical, both very good of their kind. He is one of the few novelists in whose case it is proper and literal to speak of his plots. He was a plotter, but he also had a sound though sinister note of true magic, as in the repetition of the two white dresses in The Woman in White. His ghosts do walk, they are alive and walk as softly as Count Bosco, but as solidly. So what I think that brings in addition is the sense that the doubling in Stevenson, which is deeply psychological, but as, you, as he says, good theology and good art in Wilkie Collins is also happening in this sort of magical mechanical way. But the answer in both cases, even though there can be preternatural trappings or impulses has to be that in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he's playing around with drugs and tampering with himself and destroying himself through this very strange, very strange series of events. And in Woman in White, again, it's the weirdness, the doubling has at its foundation a very concrete thing, which for your listeners who haven't read Woman in White, pause and come back in 700 pages, is the fact that Laura Fairley and Anne Catherick are half-sisters because of the illegitimacy of Anne Catherick. It's this tiny piece towards the end of the novel where the narrator says he, he meditates on the scriptural verse, the sins of the father shall be visited upon the children. 
They are doubles because of the profligacy of their father. So again, social cause, and they then become victims and their personalities become fractured. Laura Fairley can be put into an insane asylum and called somebody other than herself um, in this just terrifying way halfway through the novel with the swapping of the two women and can be destroyed and victimized through at its root a social sin. So if, if you compare it as you did to Frankenstein, of course in Frankenstein he's tampering with life and creation and there's a there's a very strong otherworldly intervention. There's also that wonderful passage where the monster stops and learns how to read and reads Paradise Lost. And that's a, that's honestly one of my favorite bits of the novel. Like, let's just take an intermission and we'll do a reading lesson. <laughs> it's fabulous. And it's also something that's left out of all the movies. So relevatory of the character and of what's going on in the novel and what Shelley's, well, Mary Shelley is, of course, processing the weirdness of her upbringing and the weirdness of her extremely disagreeable husband, Percy. But there, there again, we're back more in the preternatural the doubling and the breaking down of the human person and the human soul in Stevenson and in Wilkie Collins has to have it's a heavier social component, especially in Woman in White. I think perhaps actually, if we were to put these on a spectrum, do you think we'd have to put Stevenson sort of halfway between Dracula, Frankenstein, and Woman in White, the Moonstone? What do you think? Halfway between? Sort of? Yeah, I think so, because there's almost like a, an attempt at a sort of rational like, explanation. Although I guess that's a little bit in uh, in the sense of Frankenstein of they were dabbling with science that they just didn't know how far it could take them. But I love that the, the whole thing about the problem that occurs in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is this potion that's being made with which has this, I think Chesterton again speaks of like the, the move uh, of Satan to alter or have some imperfection in the compound that means it can't be replicated. There's that sense of it being in the same way that, well, in, I guess in a sort of inverse way at the end of Lord of the Rings where the hand of fate pushes Gollum over the edge. It's the, it's the hand of, of Satan adding this imperfection into, into the compound in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So it's this fully kind of scientific explanation and then just at the very last minute that, that move of, of the diabolical. Well, and I think it also reflects on the limitations of the diabolical that all that the diabolical can do is imitate and come up with a perverted doubling of the reality. So, and this brings us to werewolves as, as well, which interestingly in many traditions, the werewolf is someone with a proclivity, a propensity or a um, predominant disposition towards a certain kind of sin. But what is the actual mechanical thing that drives the werewolf into from potential to actual where you know lycanthropy it can be the influence of the moon it can be dabbling in drugs it can be use of the occult there was uh, some folklore that said that there would be the wearing of a magical girdle under a certain type of moon and but it's that it's that messing around with what the potential fallenness of man which is what uh, you know dr jekyll's doing he's playing around with well the real fallenness of man but to see how far he can take its potential. Um, this is why I say, I've said many times in interviews, werewolves are just, it's just concupiscence in technicolor, which is one of the reasons I love the Gothic as well. So many of the monstrous things are just what we all are without grace, but also just the, that it can't, it has its limitations because all that Satan can do is imitate and make this false double that 
he cannot create something new. He cannot create anything new. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was most clearly seen in Dracula as that, as you've pointed out many times, and as in that episode of Dracula, we did specifically, which is that repeated inversion of the Eucharist that, you know, in order to get something truly diabolical, you have to invert what is the most sublime and the most divine. Well, and even at the end of Dracula, which it becomes a little bit unsatisfying because, as I said, Bram Stoker throws everything in and then he doesn't really follow it to its theological conclusion. Um, You even have Jonathan Harker saying, sometime I'll think about sacramentals, but maybe not, actually. Um, But at the very end, you have very Christ-oriented symbolism in the death of Quincy Morris. and But you don't really have the full flushing out of this is the anti-Eucharist. Now we are going to combat it in a specific and satisfying way. We just have, actually, let's just dispatch Dracula and he turned to dust. All good. I don't know if you read the original manuscript. The end had um, the collapse of Castle Dracula, the sort of geological disruption, and it's consumed by the earth. I wish it were in the book because that was much more satisfying. Than yeah, that sounds great. It was really exciting. It was really exciting and seemed to have more of a, to, to be more on the scale of what one would expect from Dracula. But yeah, so in the end, Dracula, I love it as a novel, but if you follow the, the theological hints of the novel, it becomes ultimately not as satisfying as it could be. So I think maybe to go into like a little bit more detail about The Woman in White, as you already mentioned, it's, it is a kind of mystery novel. And so talking about it is a little bit difficult because if you're talking about it, you're sort of giving away at least some of the mystery. I think that the one that you pointed out already about Anne Catherick and, and Laura, while it is an important mystery, it's actually not the central mystery of, of the story as, as much as you might expect it to be. Um, but to, to give like, I guess, a kind of overview, and I think even to go a little bit further back and give an overview of Wilkie Collins as well, just because I do feel like he sits on that sort of second tier of classics that like they're not the first ones everyone gets to. They're sort of like the the next tier down. But Wilkie Collins was a Victorian writer and a great friend of Dickens, actually. And the two of them travel together a lot and spent a lot of time together and work together a lot. And and so you can definitely see that in both of their writings. But whereas Dickens is sort of bombastic and, and like you said, that sort of parade of the entirety of creation in front of you as you're reading him. Wilkie Collins is a more contemporary style in some ways. He's more pared back. He's a little bit more to the point, I guess. And he, he his most famous novels at least center on this kind of reporting mechanism. So The Woman in White and The Moonstone. The Moonstone is more definitely a detective story. It actually features an actual detective. But both of them have this sort of narrative style, which is taking each person to give an account of of what's going on. And uh, the plot begins, as you said, very dramatically. It is honestly one of the, the greatest openings of a novel, which is that we are introduced to the character of Walter Hartwright, who is this drawing master, and he's been given this job that he should be really excited about to go up to Cumberland, as it was, my, my beloved Cumbria, to teach two young ladies how to draw. What could, what could be more delightful as a job? And he's sort of celebrating and getting ready to leave London. And on his last night, as you said, that dramatic moment, the woman in white appears from the mist and touches him on the shoulder. And he, again, it's a, a really kind of interesting in that it subverts your expectations. It, 
isn't actually that spooky a meeting. She, they sort of talk and then he asks her where she's going. And there is that sense that she, she's got this big dark secret, but she, he's not frightened of her like you would be of a ghost. It's not that kind of experience, but he helps her to get a cab. He helps her to find where she wants to go and, and sends her on her way. And as she leaves, he he's walking along and hears from these two men that they're looking for someone who has escaped from an asylum and he realises it's the woman in white. And and then the novel takes a sort of abrupt turn and he goes, he has to just get on with his life. There's nothing more to do. So he goes up to Cumberland and goes to Limeridge House and meets these two young ladies and naturally falls in love with one of them. And it turns out that she's engaged to someone else. And so he sort of goes off and goes to Honduras and cries a lot about it. And she marries this uh, much against her will. She she is also falling in love with him, but she agrees that it was it was arranged and she had promised and there wasn't anything particularly wrong with the first guy. So she has no reason to object. So she marries this guy, Sir, per- Sir Percival Glide. And, and then at that point, that's when it starts to become so much more sinister. And she, you get introduced to his friend, Count Fosco, who's this sort of amazing character of like, he's very corpulent and he's got pet mice and he has this, he's obsessed with opera and he's this very kind of interesting and sinister figure. And in a way that a lot of the characters are trying to articulate and they can't quite put their their finger on why. And so Laura has moved to Sir Percival Glyde's mansion and with her sister Marion or half sister Marion. And it then becomes this plot about how she comes to realize that they're after her money and like you said the law becomes this real issue with it and then the doubling of the characters becomes central to this disguising of how they're going to get at her money absolutely and i think um when you were describing that early scene uh i think and i think you're right on that it's not like spooky the thing that it weighs on walter's mind Mm. and then remember the scene where he's talking to marianne halcombe and she's been reading her mother's letter, the mother she shares with Lara. And he starts realizing, looking at Lara in the moonlight and realizing the resemblance before she can articulate, that's when it becomes uncanny and the mystery and the preoccupation uh, comes out. I would say, too, uh, a scene I know that you know I love, when they're all, Sir Percival, Count Fosco, Madame Fosco, Marion, and Lara are sitting at Blackwater Park, which is a filthy, horrible place Parts of the building are run down and Marion herself falls ill from what on investigation I discovered was a uh, disease from a bacteria ridden mite. They need to fumigate Blackwater Park. It is not a healthy place. They're sitting there and Count Bosco and Sir Percival start talking about the difference between a wise murderer and a foolish murderer. And it's a very disturbing conversation. And Laura even says, I don't think that this is right. And Count Bosco mocks her. And one of the things he says is, I'm a very bad man, Lady Glyde. I'm a very bad man. All the superficial normalcy of your English society, I'm the bad man who tears off the mask and reveals what's behind it. And that's one of the threats of the whole novel is that when secrets, the, the stable English, English society, if we tear away the mask, what dark secrets, what secrets does Sir Percival have? What secrets does Count Fosco have if we tear all those away? What is left and will you, oh, uh, sweet, highly virtuous female, be protected? And the answer is nope. <laughs> so it's, uh, it becomes unsafe because of those secrets. 
I was talking to my husband about secrets in sensation fiction, and he was saying, well, there's a distinction between privacy and things that are kept private and things that are kept secret. And there is a hint in these sorts of novels that the secrets mean something immoral or corrupt or wrong. So the, the, there are many secrets in the, in the book, and they, be, they start to operate together with these two men who are conniving, as you said, for Laura Fairley, Lady Glyde's money, and successfully, successfully, mm. and the law can't protect her. The law can't protect her. It takes Marion and Walter working outside the law to force the eventual resolution. And I think that's that's really true, and, and the distinction between this and, and the Gothic, which is that the the really scary elements come down to things that are very, very mundane. I remember when I was listening to it with my flatmate Phoebe and we got to the section where there's essentially just, it's just two lawyers discussing the marriage contract. And it's so terrifying to listen to these two people and you you can sense someone being led into a trap and you you know it. And even the lawyer on the other side knows it and there's absolutely nothing he can do. And so there's the sense that A, that there's a sort of, failure in the expectations of the law. But as you've pointed out, that their their uncle, Frederick Fairley, is the at absolute crux point of this because he refuses to intervene in thinking about the safety of his niece, that this is so absolutely central that it just comes down to someone who couldn't be bothered to be virtuous. And uh, it brings us back to Count Fosco as well. There's the scene where Marion Holcomb creeps out very sick because of her bacteria-infected mite bite, <laughs> to uh, the the veranda. And she's on top of the roof of the veranda in the rain, listening to Sir Percival and uh, Count Fosco. And Count Fosco starts asking questions. And one of the questions is, Percival, do you care about your wife? Do you love your wife? And then uh, later on, he, when he realizes Anne Catherick and Laura Fairley look the same, and he goes, oh my, he gets all excited because he knows the doubling can, he can use that. But when he's just asking simple questions, if your wife were to die, would you get the money? And so Percival says, stop looking at me. You're making my skin crawl, my blood run cold. Stop it. You're scaring me. And he says, why would you be scared? Lawyers talk about these possibilities every day. I am just like a lawyer. I'm just discussing possibilities. Um, and it is terrifying. And like Sir Percival, our, our blood's running cold. Marion's mm. blood is running cold and it needs to because this thing, the law, which is supposed to protect someone like Laura and like Mary is, is not, or Anne Catherick. Why is Anne Catherick not being protected by anyone? No one, not her mother, um, her mother, another totally monstrous character who's really fun to look at um, uh, and probably majorly contributed to her daughter's mental instability. If you think about the lack of maternal uh, affection and how that can damage a child. Yeah, she's not protected by family. She's not protected by the law. Yeah. Uh. It's fun to look at The Woman in White almost as a kind of double of a gothic story because you have all of these gothic elements, but they're sort of dressed up in more modern dressing or more kind of mundane dressing that like the castle, like you were saying, Dracula's castle, well, like you said, it becomes this sort of decaying, decrepit Blackwater house that like, it, it's the same, but it's different. It's more more like what you might actually encounter or like, yeah, even the idea that like, if you imagine a, a, a castle, you think of a moat and, and Blackwater has this literal Blackwater, this sort of <laughs> disturbing lake that's around it. 
but also has and, servants. If you read Dracula, you get the feeling that Dracula is the one doing all the housework. And mm-hmm. Jonathan yeah. Harker even says, there are no servants. Is he making my meals? But there are servants at Blackwater and you hear from them and they're part of the plot too. And you get accounts from them and then which reveal the machinations. So it's an operating household to the point that when Sir Percival dismisses all the servants to further his aims, the housekeeper quits. She says, I'm yeah. not working here anymore. I can't, I cannot operate a household when you just took away all my servants. Yeah, absolutely. And even that sense of like the asylum almost becomes like the dungeon. That's where you put people that you don't want to have to deal with. And it's, you know, I think I read somewhere that in, in is it Lady Audley's secret that it's that going to the asylum is called being buried alive. It's that exactly. sense that this is putting putting people out of the way in this way that, and like I think in particular in the Victorian era, I wonder how much of a cross-section there is in this that like you said, the Gothic begins earlier and has this interest in madness. But by the time you get to the Victorian era, there's such an emphasis on like cleanliness and hygiene and health that there's a real phobia around madness and uh, breaking away from the norms. And even like the idea of being, and you see that a lot in Jane Eyre, that like if you're dis- disheveled and not clean, that that's the same as being mad or that's the, that's an in- indicator that you're out of your mind. And so this this asylum becomes this place of like, and it's been very overwrought in the way that people talk about it. That you, you think that women everywhere were being shipped off to asylum, <laughs> asylums in, in the Victorian age. And the reality is, as, as with all things, asylums were very expensive and that's quite an expensive way to to get rid of someone but yeah that that sense of like this is almost the double and then if you're thinking of that like Count Fosco is so the the Machiavellian or even like the Faustus like he's just this this evil character and yet like you said he's the evil character who's who's coming uh, coming to you in a very almost bureaucratic way like oh well of course I don't uh, of course I'm talking about this I'm just like a lawyer or there's a part quite late in the novel where he's talking about how I'm a chemist and chemists should do great things and he he goes on this long thing about how the evil things that he did were not because he was a chemist and that should be recorded because he wants chemists to be respected well, and he <laughs> but, goes on to he goes on too to say I just want it clear I did nothing to further I did not kill Anne Catherick if I had to, I would have, but I didn't. So basically I'm virtuous because I was not as monstrous because necessity didn't require me to be. And on the, on the madness spectrum, it is funny to, in there were so many laws to clean up the asylums, to make sure that they were safe, to reform them right and left. So, I mean, this was a preoccupation for the Victorians, but it's not infrequent when researching an author uh, that you say, uh, for example, Emmy Braddon, the author of Lady Audley's Secret, who lived for many years unmarried to a man whose wife was in an asylum, so he could not get a divorce. And then she raised those children and then raised her own children and did marry him. Um, but also that's the scandal when uh, Charlotte Bronte dedicated Jane Eyre to Thackeray. His wife was in an asylum. <laughs> So everyone said, hmm, how well do you know Thackeray, Miss Bronte? So it does pop up sometimes and you say, my my word, this is sort of, oh, yeah, so-and-so, his wife's in an asylum. It's one of those things that can happen. And again, uh, many of these private asylums, you wonder what the scope of madness was and recognize mm-hmm. that Count Fosco's use of it is clearly an abuse of the system. 
less so in Lady Audley's Secret. You wonder if it is an abuse of the system. I think that's one of the questions in that novel. With The Woman in White, I think in some ways it's amazing that Laura doesn't become more mad than she does. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, it's this is something I talked to my students about, that they would they need to give Laura a break because being imprisoned, having everything torn away from you, having everyone call you, Anne Catherick, and being imprisoned in this place for 11 months, and you've already been ill, and you know you've been schemed against, and no one will listen, and you have no resources to help you. I, I'd go off my rocker a little bit, too, quite, quite, quite definitely. And it'd be terrifying. It would be a terrifying experience. Yeah. And there is a real sense of, like, both her and Anne Catherick have these cycles of descending into madness and descending into the grave and then resurrecting from the grave and like that kind of ghostly quality to, to both of them. Um, I know you said, I read something that you were, you wrote recently about it, which was saying that there's like an, I didn't know this, there's an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, which (laughs) I didn't sound like you totally recommended that. Um, I find it hilarious. Well, my students know this. I love adaptation. I love to hate adaptations of classic novels because I'm a purist and none of them ever satisfy. And um, so that one I did see on stage. Uh, and so I highly recommend listening to it and becoming as fascinated and, and outraged as I am <laughs> over its content. Yeah. But you, you mentioned that there's a scene in it where Laura dresses up as her double Anne Catholic, which the fact that that doesn't happen in the book really seems like a missed opportunity, to be fair. <laughs> yes, it, could have, it could have driven Sir Percival. That, so she becomes the agent of Sir Percival's being brought to justice, which in the novel happens as a result of his own subsequent machinations to cover up his past machinations. And it's basically an act of God. It's yeah. basically an act of God. And Walter Hartwright even says, divine providence decreed that this is how I would meet my enemy after Percival has has died quite horrifically. Yeah. So, no, I agree. That could have been, I although I wonder if Lara would have had the mental stamina, really, to no. dress up and pretend to be Anne Catherick after being forced to be Anne Catherick for 11 months. She probably never would have recovered her sanity after that. That's true. That's true. But yeah, I love I love The Woman in White and I love how it uses this doubling. And like you said, to have this, the doubling being as a result of this failure of parental and, and specifically of fatherly care. And, and and that being this recurring theme throughout the, the, the novel that it sort of keeps going down the generations almost that like there's like, a, or maybe not quite the generations, but it keeps ricocheting between family members of of divesting responsibility in in various different ways and that you know how that creates repetitions of monster monstrosity you know yes and you have that great moment at the very end of the novel where in uh to show the triumphant conclusion of all things uh mary marion halcombe picks up walter and laura's child and says do you know who this is meaning he's now inherited limeridge house but Walter's response is basically, I'm bewildered, but I think I know my own child. And see, so that's the reestablishment of the proper parental responsibility. This is a father who knows his son. That's the end, at least in this particular uh, imaginative area, of the ricochet of that mm-hmm. failure of fathers. The mother side, we'd have to explore that too, and uh, how Anne Catherick, her mother is such 
vicious woman, heartless woman. But then these these replacement mothers. She actually has two replacement mothers come out of out of the ether, as it were. So, um, but that that's by the way. And I know we're we're low on time because we've had so much wonderful material to discuss. Yes. No, I think that's wonderful. And I think maybe if we just want to close out on maybe some of the doubling that you kind of found when you were writing Brother Wolf and, and how that kind of helped you with your story there. Oh, definitely. Um, of course, there's the internal doubling that of the werewolf characters. But the werewolf, of course, is a double. He's conflicted. Who is uppermost, the man or the wolf? And can he be redeemed? But there are also doubles that happen throughout the book. There are two female protagonists. One is my narrator and the other, Isabel, was my original narrator and I couldn't stand her as a narrator. And then Athena emerged. Um, But they're both the result of very vicious and problematic fathers on two different levels. Isabel herself is a twin. Her brother is a werewolf. So so we've got doubles there. I have, um, of course, you pointed out, and I was so delighted you picked up on it, but a demon goddess of the moon who has is a, she is a demonic doubling or attempt at doubling the Blessed Virgin. And it, she, of course, can't hold up, but she's the, behind all of the threats in the novel is this demonic force. And drawing from actual, as close as I can get to actual accounts by exorcists, which I can't get very close because I'm easily terrified, but there is a sense that the gods of ancient mythology were demons, were demons operating in the world. So drawing from that, but no, I, I was very delighted that you picked up on the demon goddess Mary doubling, which is mm-hmm. subtle because of course Mary doesn't play games and doesn't perform theatrical actions in a gothic novel. You know that 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 is not our blessed mother's mode of of acting in the world. No, and she certainly doesn't offer to grant wishes. Exactly. Three wishes or any wishes. And she does not, as uh, Father Thomas Edmund Gilroy comments at one point, if Our Lady appears, she will likely insist that you pray more and do penance. She won't flatter you. So that's Mm. something to watch for. A a good thing to keep in mind. I remember, I think, I don't know whether I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I was very taken with Marian apparition stories when I was a small child. And I was certain I was going to get one of these bad boys. And I, on the other hand, was terrified. I was terrified. I can't tell you how many times I prayed, please, Lord, I love you. I want to love you more deeply. Don't give me voices. Don't give me apparitions. I can't handle them. I really, really, really can't. I love that you come to me under the appearance of bread and wine. Uh, The sacramental life is, I I don't need atmospherics because I can't handle them. Which is such a silly thing for a novelist, a gothic novelist to admit, but I've spoken with two other uh, fantastic novelists, Tim Powers and Karen Ulo, and we're all agreed that exorcism and the realities of the predator, that's someone else's job, not ours. (laughs) We just sort of dance around the edges and take all the trappings for our novels. (laughs) Wonderful. 
I think I think that's it. I've just I could keep talking all day, but I have loved discussing gothic fiction with you. And of course, it's the perfect time of year. So I think everyone should pull out all of their old gothic novels and reread them or read them a first time. I would also really recommend listening to them on audiobook. Um, I listen on Audible. I know that's a little bit controversial because we all hate Amazon. Don't worry. I hate Amazon too. I use Audible as well. I use Audible as well. So same, same conflict. It's an inner conflict. It's an, a doubling within myself, the hatred of Amazon and the love of Audible. How can I resolve it? Uh, yeah. My, the only thing I, I console myself with is that nobody has to stand in a packaging line in order to deliver me my audiobook. So <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better. But I also know that there are other, I think even free audiobook um, apps that you can get. And I also know that libraries do like digital downloads of audiobooks it doesn't just have to be either the big stack of cds or what i had growing up which was like an enormous sack of cassette tapes like if you can imagine how many cassette tapes it takes to read harry potter and the order of the phoenix (laughs) for us it was imagine the lord of the rings as yeah and I'm old enough that early on, audiobooks were little records, oh. little records, children's audiobooks. <laughs> I think if my children saw it, they'd say, wait, doesn't that belong in a museum? Um, but it's, yeah, no, uh, audiobooks have saved my life so many times with small children because they reach an age where they knock the book out of your hand. But if you're up yeah. late at night with a child, in that case, though, just be selective because you could scare yourself. And then when the child sleeps, you can't sleep. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's something especially about those kind of spooky stories that really lend themselves to being read aloud and listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my my small recommendation. And other than that, is there anything you would like to shout out? Of course, we're going to link to your book, uh, Brother Wolf, which is produced by Chrism Press. Um, we'll have the links to that in the show notes. Um, and I really recommend it. And of course, your other novels, including um, A Bloody Habit, I will put in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to shout out? Well, something I can uh, shout out is uh, if you have, if any of your listeners have high school age students, I teach homeschool connections as you note and i will be teaching dracula in the spring of 2022 i've taught it before but i'm bringing it back and following that and a class on the brontes i'm going to be doing book clubs of my books i love hearing from readers i love interacting with readers about my books because i learn from them and then can share with them the characters who are very alive for me so and my children aren't old enough my eldest is nine she's not allowed to read my books yet she has to be old enough to read dracula and she's not so. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I guess I want to ask, is there any other novels on the horizon or is this too soon to, to ask? Well, actually, I am working now on a follow on with uh, the same sort of fictional universe with Father Thomas Edmund Gilroy. And at the moment, I believe we're in Ireland. I think we're in Ireland. So I will be reaching out for uh, tips and guidance and uh, because I want to deal with Irish myth. I was thinking maybe zombie leprechauns, but uh, definitely mermaids and other and other Irish myths. And this way I can finally, by, by focusing locally in this way, I think I can finally address the Jesuits. I've dealt with the Dominicans, I've dealt with the Franciscans, and now maybe I'll have some Irish Jesuits. Well, I am more than happy to be a point of contact. That's wonderful. And then I just have my last question, which we always ask is, what have you been enjoying at the moment? At the moment, um, and it's going to go back to the same topics, I'm really enjoying with my nine-year-old for her birthday, 
we uh, decided she was old enough for the Lord of the Rings. And she and I went through it together as an audiobook because m mommy needs hands free um, mm -hmm. while building puzzles, while building Lego construction so we could listen. It, we did it in about a month and a half. And I did not, I, I am a firm believer in my classes, we pledge not to give away the plot. I did not give away the plot. So accompanying her on her very strong emotional responses, say, um, at the uh, Bridge of Khazadum, uh, and her weeping and her grief over characters, and then even negotiating the end of the book, which struck her almost as hard as the end of the last battle when we went through the Narnia Chronicles, and really working through uh, grief, deepening understanding. It was, as a lover of literature, a teacher of literature, it was just fantastic fantastic. Um, I've been waiting for nine years for one of my children to be old enough to start. Um, and this was right on the heels of introducing her to Charles Dickens with Nicholas Nickleby, uh, which we also did as an audiobook. Just, mm. I can't say enough as a parent how amazing it is to experience literature with your children and to watch their epiphanic moments and just see mind blown, mind blown, or see the dawning realization and then have to pause because your poor child has collapsed in a flood of tears and you have to help rebuild. <laughs> uh, it really made for so much satisfying listening together. It was really, as a parent, I highly recommend it. Always read with your children and manipulate their emotions <laughs> by introducing them to great works of literature that are probably traumatizing, but also forming, right? Yeah. We hope. I, that's wonderful. I honestly think that doing like jigsaw puzzles with like friends and family while listening to audiobooks is pretty much like the peak of <laughs> relaxation and enjoyment. That's like my perfect Christmas holidays, everything. Like that is exactly what I love to do. It, um, it's how I get through the last month of pregnancy every time is audiobooks <laughs> and jigsaw puzzles. I'm like, this can keep me sane. This can keep me engaged. I still have happiness, even though I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> Wonderful. And then what I'm enjoying at the moment, I, I think, I don't know whether I mentioned it just earlier in this podcast. I finally, finally got to go on a plane. Can you believe that? And go see my friends in Cumbria and visit the Lake District and all of those wonderful things, which obviously is something I'm totally loving, but to give a recommendation that I can give to people <laughs> other than be friends with my friends and go to the Lake District um, is that I was trying to think what would be a good book to read while I was there. And I had picked up a book that I've been meaning to read for ages, and that was uh, The Ladies of Grace and Dew, which is a collection of short kind of fairy tale stories that is not a sequel but sort of exists in the same world as Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and I love Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell so I was really excited and those stories they're so somewhere in Yorkshire there's definitely one in, in Cumbria but they're they're very kind of that northern landscape of um, Englishness and magic and I really loved reading it and I was thrilled and I also just to shout out the author Susanna Clark she won the Women's Prize for Fiction for Piranesi. We did an episode on Piranesi. I'm a big fan. So that was an excellent book and I would recommend it. Fabulous. I'll have to look it up because I haven't read it. I've read uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. No, Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Strange. Did I just get it backwards? No, no, you got it right first time. Okay, all right. <laughs> this, my, all these babies, my mind is going in a good way. In a good way. 
That's excellent. So I think that's it for our episode. Thanks so much for joining us, Eleanor. And thanks for everyone for listening. Please subscribe and share and leave a review. And you can find us online. And our Instagram is Risky Enchantment Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Seeking Watson. And we shall be back with you in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.